Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, March 10th, 2010, and this is episode 22. Once again, I'm Paul Fox. And I'm Kevin Tissue in my nose, ma. What's up with that, Kevin? You're not feeling too well tonight? Uh, just uh, allergies been acting up. I mean, Hong Kong's not a good place for, for clean air, and I haven't kept up with my nasal spray. So, yeah, that's what happens, kids. Yeah, well, Hong Kong's not a good place for clean anything these days. <laughs> so I, you go outside in the morning, and I can't, you know, I, I can't tell if I'm looking at fog, smog, or some kind of toxic pollutant hanging in the air. It's the fog that turns our skins inside out. Yeah. <laughs> Simpsons <laughs> reference. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a geek. <laughs> well, we are here to talk to you about the latest happenings in films from Hong Kong, from Asia, and from around the globe. But before we get into our film reviews this week... Let's talk a little bit about some Oscar thoughts. Um, so, Kevin, the Oscars this past week. Uh, yep. Did you watch them? No, I missed it because well, I had to go to school in the morning and uh, at night I had a screen to go to. Um, so I missed both the, the live show and the rerun. Did you catch it, Paul? Uh, I know you're not a big fan not, of watching the show, though. Not, no. Uh, I just waited for the results to get posted like the next day and... Um, I saw, I think I saw a couple highlights on some news programs, you know, Ben Stiller dressed up in blue <laughs> and, uh, Steve Martin and, uh, Alec Baldwin poking fun at the audience. But no, I didn't, I, I didn't see the, um, uh, the Doogie Howser opening. Uh, what's his name? Neil Patrick uh, Harris. Yeah, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, yeah. Apparently he did a really good opening from what I read, but, um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, it's, all, like I said last time, all the glitz and the glamour doesn't really appeal to me. So maybe, maybe yeah. I'll go back and watch it. I mean, like every year, party ran too long and had too many different sequences that you didn't need that didn't involve handing out awards. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's just like any other Oscar shows. So in, yeah. in terms of the picks, though, any surprises for you? Anything you were uh, glad to see that won or surprised or upset that didn't win? Well, I'm glad to see the Hurt Locker win, but I was expecting that Avatar might win, if not Best Director and Best Picture, and vice versa. I, I thought James Cameron did enough, a good enough job to to earn one of these things. But uh, no, I'm, I'm actually fairly happy. Uh, Hurt Locker won. Catherine Bigelow, uh, Jeff Bridges did very well. Um, if you asked me, if you told me 15 years ago that the woman from Speed would win an Oscar for Best Actress, I did Tari tell you go to hell? And I probably get slapped because I was only eight at the time. But still, <laughs> um, yeah, Central Bullock. I, I didn't see the the Blind Side, so I'm not sure if it's really that good. Um, have you? Did you see the Blind Side, Paul? No, I haven't seen it. I, the last film I saw was The Proposal, which I really liked. She was really good in that. I think she's, uh -huh. you know, as a mature actress, she's starting to come into her own, and I was glad to see her get. Uh, a little bit of recognition. Uh, I've heard good things about the blind side, but then on the other hand, I've heard a lot of people saying that, you know, it, it was a crime that Meryl Streep got overlooked again this year <laughs> um, in terms of nominations and things. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of politics. There was a bit of a Twitter... Uh, so, so some of the people I follow on Twitter are, you know, in movie circles and things. Chris Gore, for example... Who used to run Film Threat? I think he sold it, um, but he was twittering about 
his thoughts on why, you know, Avatar losing to a film like The Hurt Locker. And he said, you know, in 10 years, ask anybody if they remember what film won Best Picture this year. And I thought, you know, okay, well, that's that's an interesting statement. If I were to add, if you were to ask me what film won Best Picture back in um, 76, 77 when Star Wars came out, I couldn't tell you. But, yeah, you know, look at the influence that Star Wars had. I'm not saying that Avatar is going to have that same kind of influence, but I think we're looking at some game-changing, um, we're looking at some game-changing technology and film techniques that are coming out of that film. And I think, you know, 10 years from now, people will remember Avatar, but they may not remember the, the Hurt Locker. So I thought that was a pretty good point. I read a, a tweet from Roger Ebert, who was stunned, apparently, and dumbfounded because Avatar did win for best cinematography right and you know i guess he was shocked because he felt you know something else like i think he mentioned inglorious bastards should have won but again i mean uh, was there anything in, i haven't seen inglorious bastards yet so i can't really comment on the cinematography aspect of it but was there anything in that film that was something that's going to revolutionize the industry because i think from a cinematic perspective that's something that Avatar probably did deserve to win because that's yeah. entirely new camera technique that people are going to need to learn and utilize in films to come. Yes, the way the camera movement was in that world, I mean, it's really easy to overlook how hard it is to actually pull that off yeah, and I because think, it looks so easy. But yeah, it's actually quite amazing what they do in the film. And I think that they're really not giving a lot of cre credit to understanding. You know, they think, oh, it's just 3D CGI, you know, stuff that's painted and done in a computer and the computer computer does everything for you. I think they don't that when people are making comments like that, even somebody is, you know, as as educated with it, with the movie experience that Ebert has, that they're really talking from a place that they don't really understand very well. So mm -hmm. I, I was glad that it won for best cinematography. Like I said last week, you know, I I don't think it really deserved to win best picture, but I do think that maybe Cameron did deserve to win Best Director because this was it was a pretty amazing achievement that he pulled together with all these different various areas. So, well, I want I want to throw this this suggestion out is if the Hurt Locker wasn't made by a woman, um, it was a man making this this war film, would it have that much that much momentum? Would it had have had that much uh, acclaim? That's I think I think. Catherine Bigelow being a woman, and I hate to say it to sound sexist about it, because she did a very, very good job, and it's a very, very good film. But the question is, if if it wasn't Catherine Bigelow making it, what if it was like Paul Greengrass um, of of the of the Bourne films? What if he made it? Would it have gotten as much acclaim? Yeah, or or maybe like a Ridley Scott. Yeah, yeah, it was like a Ridley Scott film. Yeah, yeah. That, that that's an interesting point. You know, has gender played an issue here? Um, but again, you know, I haven't seen the film, and I don't want to take any credit away from her for winning. I'm, I'm sure that it's a great film, and I'm sure that everybody who was nominated probably deserved to win because at that level, films are of such a caliber that you know that's one of the reasons they're there typically. So, but uh, for, well, for maybe me, not hurt, you know, maybe. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, <laughs> but no, you know, you know, again, it it comes down to I I look try to look at films that tend to have an impact on things as a whole or actors or directors that are, you know, will have a long-standing impact on the industry. So, and a lot of times films like that get overlooked. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very, very, you know, the, the, the geek inside of me was, was giving a little, given a little bit of a rallying cry when I read that uh, Star Trek one for best makeup. But then <laughs> one, of, one of the guys I follow on Twitter, he made a comment. He said, yeah, but, you know, it's only been like, they've only been doing that makeup for like 40 some odd years you know, because I because I had mentioned I said it only took them like eleven movies and they finally won something, and it's like it, it's the makeup in Star Trek was good, but it's like it wasn't revolutionary by any way, shape, or form. Yeah. They've been doing that stuff long enough. I mean, pointed yeah. pointed ears and arched brows and you know, <clears throat> so and, and the thing is, why wasn't Star Trek on the best picture list? If they could put District Nine on there, I think it easily could. I think it easily belong on that Best Picture nomination list. Yeah, I, have, I would agree with movies. that. Yeah. Um, so sci-fi then, still still not getting the love. I think. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but uh, up one, which I was very pleased yeah. about. Yes. Um, and you know, I think that Pixar is very well deserving. Although someone was was saying that they look at a film like Up with you know Ed Asner and. And the cast that was in that, and you know, why why is that still regulated to a category of animation rather than simply being put in um, in regular categories? And I, I'm wondering if that's something that's going to change in the next, you know, ten to fifteen years. Because you look at something like Up, and you look at something like what they're doing in Avatar, and you know, there's not a lot of difference in terms of um, what's being done with actors and what's being done with things like motion capture and, and mm. stuff like that. So the, the the line will start to get a little bit blurry, I think, in the next 10 years as to what constitutes a quote-unquote animation and what constitutes uh, an actual film. All right, let's move on to talk about some news for this week. Our first bit of news is appeared in several... Uh, several different areas, but the area I'm really pulling it from right now is called HollywoodScoop.com. And that is the film, the Tim Burton film Alice in Wonderland has broken the 3D record for um, box office weekend. And its first opening weekend, uh, it's taken in, if I'm reading the figure correctly, uh, 116 million, just over 116 million, uh, putting it ahead of a lot of other films, including Avatar, uh, which listed at uh or no excuse me that's just for the past weekend um <clears throat> but yeah it's it's coming it's the it was the biggest domestic 3d opening ever and that is including avatar so what well, is uh, not that many domestic 3d openings yeah, and, but animated films that's true and there is this idea that there's a lot of controversy now with a lot of films being shifted over to 3d at last minute like clash of the titans and some of the other new releases that are just now coming out that there's not enough screens for all of these films so there's a there's a demand for 3d screens so i think this is it's an interesting figure um we'll we'll talk a little bit later in the show about the film itself but i think this is a figure that's going to be you know frequently broken in the next five to ten years as bigger films come out and as more screens go up and as You've got a lot more things playing in those screens, and something that people should note is that a three D film is usually um, um, charged higher higher ticket prices. So these these figures are a little bit inflated. Uh, I a little uh, bit, 
let's try a lot of inflated. <laughs> I'm not sure how much extra they charge in the states. I know they charge quite a bit more in Hong Kong. Yes, right? it's quite a bit. I mean, especially if you compare, like, I mean, typically I go to, I, I I'll go watch movies on Saturday or Sunday morning when it's like rock bottom, dirt cheap prices, and uh-huh. when you compare the cost of a ticket at that time slot with with it, it's like a huge huge markup. Um, right. so yeah, it's, it, it's, I don't, you know, everybody was kind of, it was, it was bouncing around all the news sites. It's, it's news. I don't consider it that exciting because as I said, this is a new thing and it's probably going to be broken quite a bit, uh, as this becomes more and more standardized. And, and theaters are going to keep, make, keep, uh, welcoming these kind of movies because it means more and more higher prices, higher prices. Yeah. Now the one thing I was thinking about though, and this is something I was meaning to ask you. Uh-huh. Do you think that that having the 3D is going to um, limit piracy in some in some ways? Because you can't when you when you've got 3D now, you can't simply take a camera into the theater and set it up in the back, which has been the you know the typical pirate technique for a lot of films. It, you, all you'll get is that sort of you know double image. And it'll be very blurry, right? I, I don't think that's something they'd be able to fix right now with current editing software. Yeah, definitely. If there's something good coming out 3D, and I, I don't really care for technology that much, is that it would it's almost impossible to to pirate 3D films, yeah. um, unless I don't know how anyone could do it. Because I'm sure even if it comes out the 3D blurry image, if it comes out of a cam version, I'm sure even have a 3D glass, you still won't be able to get the same effect. So it does get people into the theaters, and that's something that I do support. Yeah. If nothing else, yeah. Somehow I have an image of some really dumb pirate criminals just trying to put a pair of glasses in front of their camera to get yeah. the picture quality coming. <laughs> the, the the red and green like putting yeah. right against it's the not, computer it's screen. It's not working. It's not working. <laughs> Okay, Uh, our next bit of news coming from the Film Business Asia site uh, is talking about some of the profits from the Chinese films that came out in this past holiday season. Kevin, do you want to give us a little bit of insight into this bit of news? Yeah, sure thing. Um, As everyone knows, the Chinese box office has been jumping up quite quick, uh, quite uh, significantly, um, <clears throat> almost exponentially every every year. Uh, this past year, uh, it broke records again. Um, I believe it says the total box office in the three month period between December and February, which is uh, pretty much the biggest period for films here in, in Asia because of Christmas and Chinese New Year. It's three point two billion RMB, which is uh, four times the size of uh, four times China's food box office in two thousand one. So that should tell you how <clears throat> how big of a <clears throat> excuse me. So that should tell you how big of a market um, China is becoming. However, because of this inflated market, almost also means that uh, films are going bigger budget. So we have films like Bodyguards and Assassin, um, Mulan, I think, which costs about hundred hundred even two hundred two million RMB. Confucius, uh, True Legend, and sadly Treasure Hunter also cost a lot of money. But the problem is that none of these movies are not breaking breaking even in the box office they can't rely on domestic box box office to make their money back for example um the only movie that really made money uh, apparently in this this period was uh Zhang Yimou's a simple noodle story um it wasn't really 
made at a high budget. Um, its stars are really only big in in the local market, so it attracted a lot of local business and ended up making two hundred and sixty one million RMB. Now, the highest grossing Chinese film of the period was uh, Bodyguards and Assassin, which made a pretty good two hundred ninety three million RMB. Um, n- n- nowhere near uh, what Founder Republic did. Uh, I think Founder Republic made about four hundred twenty. Um, but it's still pretty good. But you also have to consider that the film cost over two hundred million RMB. So once you take down, take off advertising and, and the share that the theaters take, is actually barely breaking even. Yeah. So yeah, now so now people are talking about you know these films are getting uh, inflated budget and and yeah, Chinese box office is growing. But if you look at what where the money is going to, it's Avatar and twenty twelve. And uh, just recently, uh, Sherlock Holmes made 30 million RMB in four days in China. So that's going to be another big hit. Meanwhile, the Chinese films are sort of, I think, uh, oversaturating the market. People people are, I think, just sort of canceling each other out. Because I think this last Chinese New Year, we had, what, six Chinese films come out? Six or seven of them? Yeah. So so everything just canceled each other. And, and, not, not, and the only really... The biggest movie in China this past Chinese New Year was was Fourteen Blades, and that only made one hundred thirty seven million RMB. So, yeah, I think that's that's something interesting to look at. Is that just because um, Chinese box office is growing doesn't mean Chinese films are should be getting they're sort of they're sort of expanding too quickly? I think mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how you see it, Paul. What do you think? Well, it's 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 an odd bit of you know. Bit of num- numbers that's going on because if you look at if you look at a, at the big films, you know you've got Avatar in the number one spot. It ran for fifty six days, and it made what is it? One billion. One point two. Uh, one point three billion. Right. Yeah. If I'm yeah. reading that correctly. Yeah. Um, just in fifty six days, and then you look at twenty twelve, which was the second <laughs> film, fifty nine days. At uh, just over four hundred and sixty million, right? What what is it about these films that's drawing people, you know, the the local population in? I mean, is it just the fact that they're Hollywood films? Is it just that label that's pulling them in? Um, because you would think you would think that you know, even even you know, the productions like Bodyguards and Assassins, which had quite a big cast in it in terms of fairly big name stars and cameos that that would pull people in. And, you know, that was at 46 days, which was, you know, just over, just over, just about two weeks shy or, or a week and a half shy of, you know, what Avatar ran. And it's nowhere uh-huh. near the, 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 the kind of level. I mean, it, is it a matter of marketing that Avatar was, there was more marketing going on? Um, it's just really... I don't know if it's a cultural issue or if it's some kind of business issue that's going on. Number mm-hmm. of screens, you know, that might play a factor. Um, well, also look at what kind of films. I mean, Bodyguards and Assassin had actually really good word of mouth in China. But you look at what, what kind of films are on that list. I mean, you have A Simple Noodle Story, which I think I heard was, wasn't was where we received in China. Uh, 14 Blades. You have uh, Confucius, uh, Mulan, Treasure Hunter, The Spy Next Door, Storm Warriors. I mean, look at these films. I mean, it's. I think. I think it's a matter of people just not willing to be conned into the theaters to watch to watch a crappy film anymore yeah. in a nice theater. And you know, it, it, the the sad thing is, is uh, as it says up further in the article. Okay, it said Simple Noodle Story was most profitable, 
based based on you know production expense. Mm-hmm. Um, the animation Pleasant Goat Goat and Big 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 Wolf Two was the second most, and they're planning a sequel for that already. Uh, mm-hmm. It's cheap animation, can be produced fairly cheaply, and uh-huh. Hot Summer Days uh, was was yeah. the third one. So. You know, and and if you look at Hot Summer Days, okay, it's it's on on the list listed at uh, 110 million. Yeah, but it only ran for 18 days. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm assuming yeah. it's still running. I'm I'm not sure. It's still running. Yeah, I think so, so. You know, there there are a lot of different factors to to have to take in and have to look at. Um, well, I think I think one one important thing is I think China needs to stop to start thinking about expanding beyond their own market now. Yeah. I mean, they they're starting to learn that. I mean, look at Hot Summer Days didn't did well in China, but didn't do well anywhere else. Little Big Soldier didn't did, did well. I think fairly okay in China, but didn't do well everywhere else. Bodyguards and Assassin is going to turn a profit because it didn't not only did it do well in China, it also did very well here in Hong Kong. I mean, considering how it built word of mouth and and how long it stayed here, and I think elsewhere in the region as well. I think there's something that I think China has sort of oversaturated the market now. I think yeah, they but I mean, even look at yeah. it, it. It can't simply be a matter of special effects either, because look at look at the Storm Warriors, which is way down at, uh, at you know near the the middle, lower middle on the list. It ran for thirty three days. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still running, but it only made fifty nine million. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it, and and a that's a that's a that's a big budget extravaganza as far as Chinese and and Hong Kong films go. So it it's. I don't know. Something's something's going on with the way they're promoting Hollywood films, or the, the 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 simple name Hollywood being attached to things, or maybe it's the directors, you know, the the mm-hmm. Michael Bay's and the James Camerons that that those names. Maybe that's what's pulling people into the theaters. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I doubt it's you know there's a big John Cusack fan club in mainland China. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe people have little John Cusack shrines in their homes. You know, all hail the Cusack. I don't know, but there's yeah, it's it's really hard to figure out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, True Legend, which is this, you know, the first three D three D martial art films in China. Um, that only that actually did way worse than I expected. Yeah. Um, Forty six million, and uh, of course now you can see you've uh, seven two tens of prosperity and Poker King, Hong Kong films just. Aren't it's being Hong Kong films isn't is enough anymore. Yeah. I think seventy two tenants of prosperity made more money in Hong Kong than it did in China. Well, seventy two tenants of prosperity, I I wouldn't look on too too seriously because that's culturally that's very Hong Kong that film. Yeah, yeah, it, it did very very well in the south, yeah. as in like in the Guangdong in the Guangdong province. Um, I I wouldn't see I wouldn't see that doing well in. In much beyond uh, Guangdong province and and places that don't really speak Cantonese, although I'm sure they you know they, you know it does have that Mandarin boss, you know element to it. It's just it's too local, I think, for for yeah. it to be a big outside of Hong Kong and and perhaps some some of the overseas Chinese communities that have roots in Hong Kong. Yeah, but well, yeah, you, yeah, I mean there's some of these on here like Confucius, okay. I mean, all the hubbub they had about Confucius and pulling pulling Avatar off of screens, and it ran for seventeen days, and only made ninety nine million. So, mm-hmm. there, there was very much a backlash to one the Avatar thing, and and two, this is really one of those cases where really word of mouth 
actually really killed Confucius. Um, I think word of mouth in China is very bad for this film. Yeah. So that so finally you see a film where it's not just based on uh, uh, hype or or special effects or cast anymore. This is a film where that tell filmmakers, hey, your movies should actually start to be good. Yeah, and looking over this list though, uh, just to go off topic a little bit, what's up with distribution in Hong Kong? I mean, they've already gotten the spy next door. I mean, yeah. come on, Jackie Chan, your office. I can walk by. I you know the bus I take home drives by it every day over there in Kowloon Tong, and I see the big dragon symbol. You know, office of Jackie Chan. How come your films do not come out in Hong Kong? You know what? What's up with that? Is it Little Big Soldier? It came out here last, I think. Um, we still haven't gotten The Spy Next Door, and that's an American film. Yeah. Um, who knows when we'll get Karate Kid? I mean, well, well considering it's The Spy Next Door, we should, we should actually be thankful that it hasn't well, reached Hong Kong. Yeah, but I mean, you would think you would think you know he's he's one of the favorite sons of Hong Kong. His studio's here. He does a lot of production. He, you know, he has a lot of production teams coming from here. I know he's working more and more with mainland teams and things, but I mean, come on, this is this should be your home. This should, you know, we, we should get films first. We should have priority, even if they're crappy films. <laughs> his real name is is Chan Hong Kong born. I mean, that's yeah. that's his Chinese name. So he was, but uh, sad to tell you, Paul. Actually, I think I've read somewhere that his office is moving to Beijing. So that office in Kowloon Tong. I wouldn't be surprised. If... Yeah, I heard it tearing it down soon. Actually. Well, let's move on to talk about some real movies for a change. Uh, and so we'll get into our East Screen picks for this week. Um, Kevin, what's first up on our agenda? Yes, first up, it's uh, the award-winning uh, film, Echoes of the Rainbow, uh, directed by Alex Law, uh, produced by his girlfriend, long, long-time girlfriend, Mabel Chen, who's usually, who usually takes the directorial um, duties on their films, but this time kind of stepped back because it's a pseudo-autobiographical story from uh, Alex Law. Um, Paul, do you want to do this? Uh, do you want to do a plot here? I, I saw this film uh, about three months ago, actually, at a test screening. Okay, so, well, I'll, 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 I'll give it a little shot since I saw this last week. And so basically, this is the story of, a, of the Law family, living in a very uh, poor part of early Hong Kong back in the... It takes place in, the, I'd say, the 60s, if I have my my time period correctly, 50s or 60s. 
I believe so, 60s or yeah. 70s, yeah. And so it stars Simon Yam as the father who runs a small, very modest shoe shop at the end of a street. And he ha- he is, has his wife, played by Sandra M. And they have two sons, uh, an older son uh, who's a boy who's in, um, who's in uh, secondary school and a younger son. And the film follows uh, the younger son and he serves as, as a narrator in, in various points. And it's, it tries to sort of center on the younger son at many points, but it veers off. So it's kind of, it's not really a story specifically about him, although I think that's kind of how it, it wanted to start out. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it basically tells the story of the life of this family and during this child's youth bounces around, but it really follows the, the life of, of the family over a period of a, about a year based on school um is what it looks like Mm -hmm. and so did you like this film kevin um i have to give it credit because this is a uh, i think this this is another film from uh that's funded by the hong kong government film fund and for once you actually get a hong kong film out of it i mean the third mado was 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 a hong kong film fund film as well but uh, part of the produ- production went to China, and uh, also uh, I'd say made a lot more money in China than they did in Hong Kong. Even though it is yes a very very local film, but finally a live action Hong Kong film fun film that's that's very local, and I enjoyed it for that reason. But um, if you ask me if it if it if it really really um, uh, earned the award that I won at Berlin, I would sort of argue that the character the competition must have been kind of weak because. Honestly, I didn't think it's a very strong film, and definitely not up to the caliber of what Mabel Chern, Alex Law team has done. I mean, they made *An Autumn's Tale*, possibly the best Chow and Fat dramatic non-action film ever made. Yeah, I would, um, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, from from there, I mean, even and a very very personal story to to Law. Uh, it's just, it's 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 based on his life. So with that kind of background, I mean, the result is not really as strong as I thought it could have been. You may, it's interesting that you mentioned McDowell. I because this film had a very strong McDull feeling for me, and not just because Sandra was playing the mother, but also because you kind of had this, you know, dopey little kid, not very good at school, giving some narration, uh, you know, saying some ridiculous things at times, being naughty. Um, I, I, I seriously thought I was watching a live action McDull for about the first 20 minutes of the film. The what did you think in terms of the performances? Um, I think I think both the adult actors were fine. Um, Sandra and Simon Yam, yeah, I mean they 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 do us very well, but um, I, I think their characters are a little weak, especially Sandra Um's character. Um, for for a typical mother character, and Simon Yam plays a typical strict father thing. I mean, of course he's he has a presence on screen, so I mean you know it's always good. Um, the kids. Um, the kid, the, the the older brother, is played by a young pop star, uh, Arif Arif with two A's, Arif Lee, I believe, and he's okay in the film. I think it's his first acting uh, acting role. Is very is, so he does pretty good. Um, the kid gets a little a little annoying at times. I mean, a little, but that's what you could a little. <laughs> that's that's what you could. I mean, that's what you could. Um, 
I guess expect from you know these kind of cute, cute kid characters, and I suppose that is how some kids per- act. Act. I mean that that is true. But of course, I always I learned this um, from school is that you, okay? So you put an annoying kid on the screen, and yes, it, it's true that the kid is real, it's realistic. The kid's annoying, but the kid is still annoying. So so, but you know, I mean, the kid does fine. He has he has to carry the film, which is something that. Is uh quite impressive, I guess what he does here. Um, as for the girl, the the girl who plays uh Arab's love interest, that was a really big, 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 big flaw of the film. That was really easily the biggest flaw of the film. The there's a subplot uh regard about the the older kids um romance of a richer girl, and it's really handled quite. It's quite shallow, and it really doesn't add much to the plot. And it almost seems like they need a young actress there for the sake of having a young actress. Um, so that's kind of what I got out of it. Um, yeah, I, 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 the, the kids, you know, the three kids, there are basically three kids, the two brothers and then the love interest, um, play who this, this character, Flora, I think her name was. Yeah. And I, the, the little boy was extremely annoying, annoying <laughs> in, 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 and especially when he'd start crying, it's yeah. like he'd, when he'd turn on the tears and just start crying at the top of his lungs, I wanted to leave the theater. It was it was too much, and it happened too often. Um, the older boy was okay, but it seemed like he was dubbed in quite a few scenes. Like they were doing post production sound with him, and the the yeah. girl also. It seemed like she was dubbed, and that I found that um, given given the the attention to detail that was being paid in terms to the cinematography, I was very disappointed that the sound quality was not better. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't really, how to say, I, I wasn't attracted to the kid. So he did not hold me to the story. I didn't care about the older brother. That didn't hold me to the story. I liked the parents, you know, Sandra and Simon Yam, but there wasn't enough of them in the story. And ultimately, uh, I'm going to try, I may, I may, may say some semi-spoilers here for the next minute. So... Mm-hmm. Fair warning: If you don't want, if you don't want spoilers, uh, stop now and and jump two minutes ahead. But this film, as I mentioned to you in in some of our Twitter conversation, uh, is for me was copying two major films. The first being a moment of romance with you know that the the story. If you've seen a moment of romance, Andy Lau, poor guy, falls in love with rich girl, you know, and she's immigrating to go overseas. Same exact plot device here was not interested in that. Um, and then the second plot device is somebody's got cancer. Oh, gee, <laughs> I wonder who it is. And they're dying from it. Um, seen that plot device done much better in the, the Lao Ching Wan film um, with Anita Yun, um, C'est la vie mon chérie. I mean, it, it was just, it was like I could see so many elements being borrowed so between those two films and the, the McDull feeling I got in the beginning, I was just saying to myself, how in the world did this win um, the award? Because I just wasn't seeing it. I mean, maybe because I've been exposed to those other films and the, the, the judges have not, that they felt that this was something that was really remarkable and amazing storytelling. But for me, it was just kind of like old hat, you know, and, and I don't think it was that well done. Yeah, Paul Chun, uh, who plays uh, Simon Yam's brother, the uncle, um, he has a small role here. 
but you know there's there's a little bit of lee rock thrown in because you've got corrupt police coming down and during this time period and they're shaking down you know all the shops okay. well it's, full, full disclosure that was a role that one of our friends uh auditioned for but did not get yeah so yeah food I, I i don't think he fit that role yeah yeah me neither um, but he yeah. worked very hard in Cantonese, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That was a there was yeah, that was definitely kind of jump. I mean, it's it's got a lot it got a lot of attend um period details, right? And I know they're they were really, really look um uh getting that film in a very, very narrow, very small budget, uh considering what they had to do. And you know, I could appreciate the 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 attention to detail, period details and, and a lot of a lot of local charm, things like that. But yeah, you're right. Regarding regarding the plot itself, the storytelling itself. They're not. They're quite weak, especially like I said. That 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 subplot regarding the wish girl and the and our, and and the older older son that really annoyed me because of how weak it was, and how much the how much more time could have been devoted to to the to the main story had they just decided to dump that plot anyway. Uh, just dump it. Yeah. I thought. I mean, I yeah. I don't I don't mean to sound to to totally bash the film. The film does have some really nice moments. Most of those moments happen between Simon Yam. And Sandrum, um, yeah. But overall, I was just I was really surprised, and at how, you know, overly annoyed I was at various parts <laughs> of the film, and then realizing that hey, this film was winning a major European award, um, and I was just perhaps my expectation was too high. I was expecting it to be better. Yeah, it, it is essentially a very sort of. Old, old fashioned kind of what you expect, I guess, in the eighties, eighties um, hum, humanistic drama. Yeah. Um, with and and the strange thing about the the the, the post production noise um, dubbing, voice dubbing, you were saying is that actually all these actors are from Hong Kong. Even the girl, uh, I believe, she's famous for being in a commercial here. So these are all local people, but just dubbed badly. And and again, that sort of brings back to that sort of nostalgic. It feels like an eighties Hong Kong movie with. With nicer looking cinematography, yeah, and and all the all the frustrating things are carried over. I guess the the, the melodramatic storytelling, the 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 bad voice dubbing, and and sometimes the annoying kid, and, and, and yeah, I guess I guess with better technology, the these sort of flaws just come out even more 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 obvious. Yeah, although I will say two two of the highlights for the film for me were Vincent Cock and Anne Hoy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are a lot, of, quite a bit of cameos in the film, um, and again, that also adds to the charm of the film. And yeah, so so if if I think it's worth watching, I think it's worth watching just to see, you know, what a taste of the people in Berlin, or 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 if you're nostalgic about these kind of um, family drama coming out of Hong Kong um, by these old style directors, old fashioned directors. Yeah, I, I think I would, I would, I would still, I would still recommend it. What do you think, Paul? Well, I, I'd say it. You know, it it's worth watching. I wouldn't necessarily recommend people need to run out to the cinema to see it. It it's more like get it on video at some point in my book. And one of my biggest problems with with the film was the ending. It just seems to be it just seems to be coming from out of nowhere. And given oh, given that you know, again, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler away here but given that the whole film was kind of centered around um the the shop and the, the father and the mother and then the way the thing just ends it's like 
it's it's it, it's a major jump and you know well wait a minute what happened why why are we here at this point in time now um and this does it just doesn't it doesn't make that much sense to me and i wasn't clear as to what the connections were supposed to be at that point you know is who who which characters were we supposed to be caring about which relationships were we supposed to be caring about and I was confused by that point because it, it, it seemed to me they were saying I, I was caring about a certain relationship and then with the way they ended it, it didn't seem that that was the relationship I was supposed to be caring about. So Yeah, yeah. But that that is the that major event is actually it's well, like I said, suitable autobiographical. So um it's hard to it's hard to criticize someone's life as having a twist of coming out of nowhere. But you're right, as, as in the in the film itself, it does sort of like wait, what? Like last half hour, suddenly this thing jumps out, and and it becomes the focus of the film. And yeah, it is a very strange shift, and almost almost like it's there to give the film an ending. I think. All right, our next film on East Screen this week is the Japanese film Nodame Kanta Kanta. Cantabile. Am I saying that correct, Kevin? Well, in Japanese, katagana, yeah, that's how people, yeah. Um, and so this is a film that's actually coming from a Japanese TV series, TV drama. And mm-hmm. I have not seen this film, but Kevin, you've seen it. So I'm going to pass the mic over to you and let you take it away. So Nodame no Cantabile, um, very briefly, it's uh, first a very successful comic book in Japan about um, the world of symphonic music Um in both Japan and Europe, which I guess, you know, it's a very strange topic for a comic because you can't hear the music. But anyway, it's been adapted to a very successful um, TV drama starring uh, Juri Ueno and uh, Hiroshi Tamaki. Um, and the best thing about the TV drama is how much it carried these sort of co- uh, a silly, irrelevant comic books, Mole Tao style uh, humor into live action. I always thought it's, it's sort of the closest thing to... Uh, to a Mole Tao movie in, in Japan. So anyway, um, after the success of the TV drama and also the success of a four-hour uh, one-off episode uh, on TV, they decide to just end the entire story with a very long two-part four-hour film. And this is what No Dame Kanta uh is. So this is a part one uh, that we just saw in theaters. Uh, unfortunately, it only came out here with Chinese subtitles, which uh, was why Paul can't talk about it. Anyway... Uh, continuing from the, the the film mostly continues from the four hour episode, so that means if you are not a fan of the show or you haven't watched the four hour episode, which sadly you can only get via not very legit ways, you might be lost on some of the some of the characters. I mean, the main character, um, the the silly young uh, Nodame and the serious stern um, conductor uh, Chiaki. Uh, they're still here. They they play the central role of the film, but um, there are also these side characters that came both out of the drama, the original drama on that and that one-off episode, because um, it's a continuation from it of them in Europe. Uh, anyway, the two-part film is actually quite interestingly structured because it's supposed to make an, a four-hour film, but uh, they know they're splitting in two. So the first film really just it has a major crisis. There's a major crisis. Um, Chiaki, who is um, an aspiring uh, conductor, um, is now has been uh, fired or dismissed from his uh, successful job as a conductor in Vienna, I believe, or Prague. Uh, 
Vienna, probably, yes. And it now has to take over a failing uh, orchestra in Paris. So he gets to live next to his uh, girlfriend, um, Nodame, who, who, who is still kind of like the young little admirer that, that, that still lives in a world of anime. And that's really makes her such an interesting character because of that, that really childish, immature um, girl falling for this really stern face, uh, you know, manly, uh, elegant conductor guy. So this film deals with that uh, central crisis. And, but of course, after that's resolved, they leave you a little bit of a, a cliffhanger. So we can't, I can't really talk about, no Dame Cantabile Part 1 as a film itself because there's still one part to go. But I will uh, suggest that um, anyone who wants to watch the film uh, catch up with the drama first. Uh, watch so they know who to, who they might see in the film. Uh, watch the four-hour special because there are these two characters. Uh, one's a Russian girl and one is a French guy that's speaking Japanese for some reason because they won't one because they're Japanese actors but two the, the reason will be sort of revealed when you see in the four-hour drama is that they don't want to have to speak French all this time so even the so the whole movie's in Japanese but you have French actors and you have Russian characters and you have French characters uh, but they're all speaking in Japanese so you, you have to sort of get with the dramas um, tone before you can really catch on to the film. You just want to jump into this film, not not having, not knowing. Even if you just know the comic and don't know anything about drama, I wouldn't suggest it. But for fans of the drama, people who've seen the drama, people who are fans of these characters, it's definitely a a big step up from from the overblown four hour episode. It's it's fun. The obviously the, the they spend more money on visuals. Um, the humor is quite good. I we had all had a really good time in the theaters, but. Again, that really comes with disclaimers whether you've seen the show or not. So, Paul, have you have you heard of this 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 show at all? This comic at all, or the the animation? I'm not familiar with this particular drama. Um, I do I do try to keep up with some, uh, the Jap some of the Japanese TV dramas. Um, I think the the most recent one that I watched was Attention Please, from mm -hmm. a few years ago. But, um, yeah, it's it unfortunately. There are not a lot of good channels to get TV dramas, but if you're out there and you're listening and you want a reliable source to uh, get the TV dramas with English subtitles, uh, send me an email uh, via the website and I can provide you with a source, which I believe is they, they are leg legitimate discs. Um, fairly certain they're legitimate discs. It's not out of Japan though. It's out. Of, it's a it's a company out of Malaysia that I've dealt with. And I've dealt with them a few times. Their quality is very good, and their their packaging looks authentic. With, um, you know, with often with the uh, little holographic stickers and things. So I'm maybe eighty percent sure they're legitimate. You know, anything's fake, fakeable in these days. But if you are somebody who's been looking for a source for Japanese TV dramas with English subtitles. Um, that you're, you know, and you're looking for a fairly cred credible source that can do mail order, I can provide you with that. Uh, but just, you know, send me an email and I'll be happy to pass along that website. Yeah. So if you definitely want to, you want to hop on the, the Nodame uh, bandwagon and see what the big deal is. And it is really quite a fun, fun drama. It has great music. It has, um, the acting is a little over the top at times. But like I said, Hong Kong film fans actually should really try and hop on this because it's really the best the 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 best way or the 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 most i guess 
the closest thing that Japan would ever have to mole tao comedy. Now, as I'm as I'm looking at the the site I generally order from, I see that they also have uh, an anime version. Have you seen that? No, no, and and again, really, I, I'm not really a big. I never read the 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 comic book, and I never never watched the animation. But I think really, just to to really catch on, you have to be a fan of the TV genre because I've been told that uh, from someone who read the comic that actually the story deviated deviates quite a bit because I mean it's been dragged on for quite a bit now for live action. So, mm. yeah. So, but you, we still have to wait for movie number two. Yep, we're waiting, waiting for movie number two coming out. Well, it comes out in April in Japan, but we're not sure when it'll come out in Hong Kong. Hong Kong but yeah, um, the second part looks to be more serious. But uh, again, it should, it should, it's going to wrap up the story and hopefully it'll wrap it up in a good way because they're promising that it never, they would, it's this very final chapter, which yeah. I, I don't think you never trust. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that this, this series was fairly popular because often with like a lot of the TV dramas, they have you know typically around an 11 episode 10 or 11 episode run uh-huh. and then if the show's fairly popular like a year or two years later they'll come back with a movie special and then a movie special too that are like made for tv movies yeah. they're not general cinema releases but this has had that already and and now it's having this sort of theatrical release as well to continue it on so i'm assuming that it has a pretty strong following in japan yeah, it's actually quite yeah, it has quite strong following in Japan. Um the um the reason that they usually make a sequel to the show first, to the series first, but because they, the the first series ends up going to to Europe and they know they're not going to do entire TV series in Europe, which is probably why they jumped straight to the um TV movie, the 4-hour TV movie. And again, um because the rest of the story takes place in Europe, they're not again, they're not going back, they're not going to film entire series back in Europe. So, and plus I think they, they're limited by the number of stories they have from the comic book. Mm. So I think they decided to just finish it off and it's done quite well in Japan. The first part made um, $40 million US uh, in Japan alone. So uh, once you add up the two parts, I mean, it's, it's going to make a lot of money. And it's also did, it, it also did actually quite well here in Hong Kong because um, the show was, uh, the drama was shown on uh, the biggest TV station here on Sunday night, um, which is, and it was fairly popular. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's quite a popular show. And I think part of it is because it blends that kind of irrelevant humor with just really great classical music. It's, classy and yet it's really silly and that and so you're not feeling guilty about enjoying watching this crude humor i think i think that's really the biggest key the the the, the key to its success Don't come around here 
Okay, it's time to move on to our West Screen Films for this week. And up first, we have the big Tim Burton blockbuster, Alice in Wonderland. So, Kevin, you haven't seen this yet, correct? No, and, and like I wrote my Twitter, I don't know why I can't get myself excited about Tim Burton movie. Uh, I think I think his last good film was Sweeney Todd, and the rest and everything else he put on the last 10 years just sort of failed to, to interest me. I don't know. Um, yeah, why don't you tell us about it, Paul? Maybe you can convince me to go. All right, so Alice in Wonderland uh, is the story of a young British lass named Alice, obviously, who falls down the proverbial rabbit hole in which she finds the magical world of Wonderland. And in there, she meets all kinds of interesting characters, including the White Rabbit, the Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cat, and the Red Queen. So this is sort of a classic retelling of, of the story at first. Um, it looks like it's simply a live-action version of Alice in Wonderland. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I will say that it's actually much more than that. And I think it's an interesting... What Tim Burton does here with, with the original material is very interesting in the way that he extends it. Um, some people, you know, may not may not like that. They might be expecting simply to see the original classic, but um, I, I think it's very, very entertaining what he's done. The film stars uh, Mia Wasikowska as young Alice. She's a, a newcomer to the screen, and she really steals the show. Uh, even though she's playing uh, against like big names like Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter as the Red Queen, Anne Hathaway as the White Queen, her presence um, is really uh, very, very strong. And I think that she carries herself well as the character of Alice, and she helps kind of lead along the film through this place. And you're never overly distracted, um, even though there's a lot going on and you're kind of cast in this magical world that is, you know, you can, you can see Tim Burton touches here and there. Um, you know what to expect. You know which characters you're going to see. Uh, you know the things that the, the Red Queen's going to say. But Tim Burton changes things just enough or adds elements of his own here in, in, in little touches. And I don't think his hand is is too heavy, which was one of the things I was kind of afraid of going in. I thought that he was going to do with this what he sort of did with with Batman, with characters like the Penguin, um, and that it was just going to be overly sort of gothicized in his style. But fortunately, I don't think it, that I did not come away with that impression. Um, and I, it was very very enjoyable. I, I saw the 3D version. I did not see the IMAX version though. I thought the 3D version. Uh, the 3D was was working well. It was not very intrusive, and I really really liked it. I think that this is is very very enjoyable. It's a Disney title, so you know I think he's working very well within the confines of Disney, and because of that, um, it it's very you know it is good for children. It, it's a little graphic in a few places. Um, there there are there are, there are a couple scenes where I was a bit shocked that they actually did what they did. Um, but I don't think there's anything overly scary here um, that would really, you know, prohibit it from being enjoyed by people of all ages. So uh, the performances were excellent. Um, I was, when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, Johnny Depp, he's going to be channeling craziness just like he did in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
Um, but that that's not the case here. I think that he has uh, he has a difference that he brings to the character of the Mad Hatter that's interesting and engaging. Uh, Anne Hathaway was very odd as the White Queen. I didn't really know what to make of her character, but f somehow it worked. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, who is, you know, the other go-to person in Tim Burton's arsenal. She's, I think she's his wife, right? Uh, Tim Burton's wife, yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's, uh, I, I, wonder, I wonder what it's like in the, in the Burton household. He comes home and says, honey, I'm going to be directing Alice in Wonderland. She says, you will put me in that film. <laughs> you know, is is it something? Is it is a relationship like that? Is it is because see she's the wife he has to cast her in all of his movies? Um, I mean, no, she's a really good actress, and I think she fits the role of the Red Queen very, very well. Um, oh. You also have some great cameos and smaller roles by people like Kristen Glover, um, Stephen Fry as the Cheshire Cat, Alan Rickman, um, even even. Um, uh, uh, Bill Nighy has a very small, very small role. You'll miss it if you're, if you're not really sure what you're looking for. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, all of Alice's adventures in Wonderland have a parallel story uh, that is sort of set up in the quote-unquote real world. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, you know, there's some growth and things that she goes through, um, and this ties in. It ties in with some of the other other literature. So the Jabberwocky, which was part of the poem that was mentioned in the Alice in Wonderland text, has a much larger role here, and it's that's one of the things that sort of Burton takes uh, upon himself to work into the narrative. So I really like the film. Um, I would recommend it again, especially if you're somebody who likes Disney films and and liked the the original uh, Alice in Wonderland animation. There's a lot here that's sort of true to that, to that form, and as I said, this isn't simply a retelling. Um, there is there is a bit more that's going on here. I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything though, so I'll just leave it at that. How is it compared to um, <clears throat> what Willy Wonka and Chocolate? Because that's the I remember enjoying Wally, Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory in theaters, but. Afterwards, it didn't really left a good impression on me. I didn't yeah. remember like uh, enough to watch it. So Willy Wonka was forgettable for me. I, I'm yeah. part of me. Uh, I have to, I have to be honest though. I, I, you know, I was in love with the classic by Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder defined for me growing up the role of Willy Wonka, and uh -huh. the way that Johnny Depp portrayed Willy Wonka more like a Michael Jackson type of character. Um, I did not. I did not like that take on it. I much preferred Gene Wilder's, you know, performance of that character. And for me, that was what make, made or broke the film. It was an interesting reinterpretation. I know that in many ways it was more true to the text than uh, the one, you know, the earlier version. But that one is much more iconic for me. And if I was going to, you know, show, if I was going to show my kids uh, of one version, I would definitely go to for the earlier version rather than the Tim Burton version. This is this came, I came away with a completely different feeling. I liked this a hundred percent more than I liked um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. All right, so then, then I might I might actually go see this then. I, yeah, I would recommend you know give give it a shot. You uh, you may be surprised. You may you may not like it. You know if you're not somebody who is a big huge Tim Burton fan, I have to say, with the exception of Planet of the Apes. Um, I, I've, and and perhaps Sweeney Todd. I did like Sweeney Todd. It was just a bit 
a bit too graphic for my taste. Um, but I, I'm, I'm somebody who really likes Tim Burton films, typically. Um, I like the gothic nature that he brings. I was just afraid he was going to bring too much of that here. Um, and mm. I, I don't think he did. I think that it was his hand was fairly light this time. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think if, if you get a chance, you know, go see it. You might be surprised. All right, our final movie this week is uh, the Jeff Bridges Academy Award-winning role from Crazy Heart. Um, now, I haven't seen this film. Kevin, you've seen it. So, once again, I'll pass it over to you. All right, so I, I didn't know much about Crazy Heart before going in. I mean, I know Jeff Bridges was in it, and I know it was a, a film that he was getting a lot of Oscar buzz for, and so I was really looking forward to that. But And I knew it was about a country singer, but I didn't know much else about the film. So I'm trying to um, I'm trying to give you guys that same impression before going in, because there are some surprises here uh, that comes out in the film. Anyway, Crazy Heart's about a um, very sort of cliche story about um, a country singer, a has-been country singer named... Uh, Bad Blake, uh, that's Jeff Bridges. He he he's sort of a he's famous for for his old music, but now he's um, at this point in his career, he's driving himself uh, around the south, uh, going city from city, performing shows, um, really really small shows. So in the beginning of the film, he's playing at a bowling alley, and that's kind of the life that he, he he's living. He doesn't have enough money to buy whiskey anymore because his his manager. Uh, doesn't want him to get the money to get drunk all over again. So along the way on his tour, um, he arrives in Santa Fe and he's um, asked to be interviewed by a local journalist played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And uh, of course, Bad Blake, he's a very sort of charismatic um, uh, uh, celebrity. He writes all his own songs and his songs are the usual kind of a good mix of country and blues and obviously has that kind of charm and he charms uh, um, the Maggie Gyllenhaal reporter character, and they they sort of um, get into this romance. Uh, meanwhile, um, he his manager is trying to get him to uh, uh, work again with his uh, old um, disciple uh, Tommy Sweet, which has become sort of a very huge, I guess, a Tim McGraw um, or, or Garth Brooks, Brooks kind of like country star, very very huge, and and uh, the, the people are, are asking him to get back to the again. But for some reason, um, Bad Blake doesn't. I guess he's kind of jealous that that his student has sort of taken over him in terms of uh, celebrity or in terms of fame. So he doesn't really want to deal with that. So the rest of the film uh, sort of deals with how his his romance and and eventually how he's going to redeem himself because of his sort of um, un, really unhealthy lifestyle. Now, there's not really much of a plot to the film. It's very, very much a character film, and Jeff Bridges really owns the film. He, he's in every scene, and he's he's so good that you sort of forget that the film doesn't really have a story. It just goes uh, very mild, and and is is I guess it's supposed to be realistic, and it's very kind of it's almost like the tone. It's almost like uh, uh, the music of the main character. Uh, this kind of uh, breezy and and not really, there's not much drama in the film. I mean, you have a very, some cliches like the, the, the drunk country singer and the, you know, being alcoholic and leading a very destructive lifestyle. And it's, it's, uh, it's a film produced by them. It's produced, it's, I think Jeff Bridges is an executive producer and Robert Duvall is a producer. And it's very easy to see why. I mean, Robert Duvall was played a similar role, I think, in Tender Mercies um, in the 80s. 
And Jeff Bridges is really Jeff Bridges' movie. It's him all the way. He's like I said, he's so natural that he doesn't really jump out and does the best actor um, award bait, you know, over the top acting scene. Just the whole movie is him. You're watching him, and he really carries the film, and he really is that watchable. Even if the film is kind of slow, and it's really his his sort of chemistry with everyone else that makes the film work so well. And um. Uh, the director Scott Cooper. He's a he's an actor, and this is the first time directing, and it's kind of obvious because his technique is still not quite there yet. Um, he has some really beautiful shots, and um, and 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 he directs. I, I think he's a he's an actor's director. Just he is an actor, so the actors are quite good. There's really not much of a story to be told here. The story is kind of weak. Um, the music is great though, and like I said, really, this is Jeff Bridges' movie. If, if there is a movie that really where watching an actor is worth more than watching the actual movie, I believe there are two of those this year. That's a single man, Colin Firth, uh, which comes out this week, and that and the other one will be Jeff Bridges uh, in Crazy Heart. Mm. So, um, and uh, I, I'm not a big fan of country music. I well, I I never listen to country music. I don't know about you, Paul, but even even with that, I really enjoy the music here. I think the music sort of spoke. Like all good music film or films with music, is that the the music speaks for the characters, and it does so here as well. And it's quite it's really enjoyable to listen to. And and Jeff Bridges, I think, played his own music, and so that's that's kind of nice. And um, yeah, um, it's kind of yeah. And and uh, anyone who likes Jeff Bridges as as the dude will kind of um will also get a little extra layer of enjoyment out of this because there's like the dude. In his fifties and plays country music, yeah. <laughs> and I don't think Jeffrey is, is ever going to sort of escape that. But that's so that's what's sort of fun about watching him. Just you watch it, you think the dude is the dude is the dude, except it's actually a serious version of the dude, and it's it's quite good. So yeah, yeah um, I'm, I'm more of a Jeff Bridges as Flynn type of person. <laughs> so, but I'll I'll get more of my fix on that in December, I believe. Ah, uh, Tron. Tron, yeah, uh, Tron too. Always a nerd, Paul. I'm yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's like country music. It's either in your blood or it's not, right? <laughs> so yeah, so if, if Paul, you if you're recommending Alice in Wonderland to me this week, I would recommend Crazy Heart for you this week. Right. Well, it's, uh, I will try to get out and see it this weekend. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast, the best from the East and the rest from the West. For more information, visit Comcast.com. All right, well, that's going to wrap things up for our show this week. We are way over time for our show, but uh, we had a lot to talk about with the Oscars and everything else coming up. Um, Kevin, any new films on the horizon for this week, do you think? Um, This week, I think... Well, Hurt Locker comes out this week here. Uh, also, Single Man, which I just mentioned. Uh, mostly in the West Green category, Sally. Uh, and Echoes of the Rainbow um, also coming out this week. So um, anyone in Hong Kong should go check them out. Um, but no, until then, is well, then it's film festival time. and uh, Oh, an early uh, advanced recommendation for everyone. Uh, Love in the Puff. Pano turns Love in the Puff. Really excellent film. We'll talk about it more in the show, but um, I really liked it. So... Okay. I can't wait to talk about that. Got some things to look forward to. I think starting in April, we'll get uh, some of the films that are just now getting released in the States, like Clash of the Titans and How to Train Your Dragon. Looking forward to both of those. Um, talked about the film festival. We will talk about the film festival a bit more uh, as that gets closer. And 
We'll look forward to Kevin's reportage of the 32 films that he's going to be seeing. But Oh, uh, it's dropped below 30. Don't worry. It's dropped below 30. Down to 30? Yeah. It's down to about 27 now, yeah. We'll try and uh, pick out some good ones to talk about. So until next time, we will once again wish you good viewing, and we will see you then. See you next time, everybody. I'm going to pause to look up the name of the main actor. Sorry. Which I should have done earlier. Okay. And that's not why. And th this is why we're not live, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> you put this in the outtake, aren't you? All right. All right. So I'll start again. Okay. Does he have a dog? And does the dog die? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, he does have Robert Duvall. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> He's a bartender friend. But yeah. Because um, in every and, country song, you've either got a dog that dies or you've got Robert Duvall as your friend. I think that's a rule, right? <laughs> yeah. And of course, Robert Duvall plays a bartender. So, you know. Oh, we should have like a, we should have a, a hot pot night and have, and force everyone to watch The Unbelievable <laughs> while <laughs> eating Sufe Young or something. But no, we could, we could extend it. We could make everybody watch The Unbelievable and Love at Seventh Sight, and any of the other worst movies that they haven't yet seen that are on the list, you know, and just... <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, I think that's the only way it could be fair. Everyone has to sit down and watch <laughs> that movie, and everyone sit down and watch Love at Seventh Sight, and then yeah. tell me which one is... Because, I don't know. Yeah, I guess Unbelievable is a film, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's really an extended TV special, isn't it?